Hello, welcome to Talking Fit. I'm Paul Rose. I'm joined as ever by Luke Morgan. And today we are joined by Adam Daniel. Adam, thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Just in two or three minutes, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, first of all, Luke, Paul, thank you for having me. Great to be here. My background, I guess I've been in the industry now uh, around 24 years, I think it is. So showing my age there for sure. And I literally started off at the very bottom. So I started off as a gym instructor in a, a local health club to me, private health club. And probably to this day is one of the best jobs I've had because I learned how to run a gym. I did everything from pool cleaning to running the beauty side to PT, I call it PT very loosely, and so spin classes, the lot. So that was my first job. And then from there, I've literally moved through the industry over the years, became gym manager into personal training, personal training manager for Homes Place, then set up personal training in Portugal and Spain for Homes Place when they were out there, where they set up out there. So Homes Place is now Virgin in the UK. And from there became self-employed PT at the age of about 24. And from there was working in Notting Hill for a good oh, 10 years in a PT studio where I trained, I guess for want of a better phrase, the rich and the famous. I also worked for England Rugby as a conditioning coach for their professional referees. And then I left Notting Hill and kind of moved back to South East London way where over the last probably 10 years, I've been heavily involved in education for Vipro, for Viper, for Wattbike, for MyZone. I forget who else at the moment off the top of my head. And in more recent years, I have opened a gym, sold a gym. I've started a conference called Feet, Fascia and Function. I've done an MBA in international sports management and currently kind of moving into the world a little bit of uh, corporate leadership coaching. I think that's me in a nutshell, in three minutes. So we mentioned before we came on, we were going to kind of focus a lot on strength training today and your approach to strength training, uh, which I won't say is unique, but it's a bit more niche than what you would see in perhaps if you walked into your local gym. Something we discussed is the different attitudes towards traditional strength training with what you might call a big three with squats and deadlift and bench and, and more of the traditional bodybuilding approach as well. And then the more progressive functional training, if you like, that's a bit more movement based and working in multiple planes of motion, things like animal flow, Viper. I won't say CrossFit because although it's puts itself under the functional training umbrella it, it doesn't really come yeah. into the multiple plane the crossfit movement that involves three-dimensional movement or yeah. Very, very... yeah exactly um so why don't you we start if you just give us a little insight into how you train yourself how you train your clients i think it would be good as well to give you i guess some context into my sporting background because it's heavily influenced the way that I train and it's also helped me understand why I guess in my belief anyway why we I believe we need to train three-dimensionally as well as integrating traditional strength protocols so my background is is three primary primary sports two from a young age so rugby from the age of five and athletics and I was very fortunate uh, as a junior athlete to run for England over four hurdles and in my time as, a, as an athlete up until the age of about 21, from the age of 
17 to 21, my weights coach, let's call them, I said call it, or him, was a guy called Keith Morgan. Keith Morgan was the Olympic weightlifting coach. He trained multiple Olympic medalists at Crystal Palace. And I was very, very lucky to get put into, into his group. And I love lifting, don't get me wrong, and I embraced it from a very young age. So I was also very lucky to learn how to, yeah, to clean, to deadlift, to squat, to do everything properly. Uh, the way, or I say properly, as, way, as far as I was taught. Now, I, again, I was very, I guess, I was, I'm not, for those of you who can't see me necessarily, I'm not the tallest of people. Yeah, I've got quite a, I'm quite muscular, but I'm quite, I'm about 5'8", five, 5'8"-ish. Five, eight and so I was actually a good size for weightlifting. And he actually wanted me to take up Olympic weightlifting instead of athletics because I was, I was squatting, I think my PB at the age of 20-ish, 21, was about, uh, I think I was squatting just under 200 kilos at 72 kilos. I had uh, 120 kg power clean, 145 kg bench press, and a 210 kg deadlift. So I've been there. I've, I've been in the trenches. I've lifted heavy. I've had blood pouring down my shins from deadlifts. I've dropped weights on me. And I've trained some incredibly strong people. And now I move back into the world of rugby, which again kind of shapes my philosophies and thoughts of training today. I went back in. I played uh, to a high level at school, county and regional in England trials. I went back in and was playing National League rugby. And I blew my ACL. And again, I was still lifting heavy at that time and doing all the traditional training that rugby players do. And I blew my knee sidestepping. Literally one man to beat, full back to beat, stepped, bang, knee went. No one around me. And back then I was 22, 23, no, 23, four years old. And obviously I was deeply gutted, upset, annoyed, all, all the, the emotions you can imagine. And first thing was right, I need to get back on the rugby pitch. So operation like a week later, rehabbing it, getting back into it. everything. Uh, obviously I'm looking back on it now. Everything I did was all just up and down, backwards and forwards. And first game back, the, I, I played on the wing. The, the first team winger for that weekend, I was meant to be playing second team. First team winger pulled up injured Thursday night training. I get thrown back into the first team. And we're playing uh, a team called Walsham in Norfolk. Ten minutes to go in the game, take a high ball. It's wet, it's windy, it's cold. And I get hit by two players and my knee goes again. This time my medial meniscus, same knee, first game back. And even back then, obviously, we didn't really understand this concept of multidimensional, three-dimensional movement, multiplanar movement particularly. Even back then, I was like, why has this happened? This doesn't make sense to me. I've done all this lifting I'm strong the, the physios tell me I'm strong I've gone to those biokinetic chairs where you do the eccentric and concentric work and it measures everything and they're telling me that everything's perfect I'm going well it can't be and that kind of from a young youngish age got me thinking there must be a better way a more efficient way to train fortunately though at that time when I got injured I was kind of still working because back then you couldn't really make a living from playing uh, professional rugby I was close to it so I was still working in gyms and I went back and did some coaching with my old athletics group and a guy there, a guy called John Squirrel, it's like I had him, he said, uh, you fancy being a PT? He ran, or he was an area manager for Concept Personal Training who had the front or the deal to, or the contract, so he to run all the PT for Home's Place and that's how I got into PT. And therefore that's kind of where my interests or lay was this idea of 
how can we take athletes and we can get them stronger, yes, using squats, deadlifts, bench presses, all of the above, yet there has to be more to it. And back then, we didn't really know a huge amount about it. Yet, what well, I would say at the age of, again, 24 or 5-ish, uh, Paul Check was just coming on the scene. And I guess he was probably one of the first people that used the word functional training, I would suggest. And I did his very first golf biomechanics course in the UK. And in fact, his first course, full stop. And that's when I kind of had this aha moment. It's like, wow, okay. So this guy is saying that we can work the body as one, as an integrated unit. So we can still lift heavy because back in the day, for those of you who've ever seen Paul Check, he was an absolute unit. He was a machine. Yet he could, and I'm not saying this is the way to train, yet he could also stand on a Swiss ball and catch med balls and do all the, all the let's call it circus tricks that everyone goes either, either loves or hates, a bit of a mom, I think. And, and that kind of got me interested in going, you know what, there's more to, to strength training or performance training than just lifting heavy. And that was kind of what got me into this idea of training multidimensionally, even back then, although the science wasn't really there to support it, I probably didn't have, there wasn't a much research or even education out there about it then. So a lot of it was trial and error for me. Yeah, I think something you, you said there that jumps out is saying there's more to traditional strength training. And I think one of the big misconceptions when we talk about functional training or, or is that it's an alternative and that we're saying, okay, don't squat, don't bench, don't deadlift, go and grab a Viper and do these, these lateral shifts or grab a kettlebell and do a, a swing with a side lunge in there. And a lot of people don't like that because when you go into to a lateral movement or transverse movement, the load you're using has to come down. So then the argument pops up of, well, I can't lift as much weight doing this, so I can't get as strong. And we're not saying ditch everything else and do this instead, we're saying incorporate this into what you're already doing so you can add strength in, in the movements that you're going to use in your sport, in life, in whatever it is you're doing, because the body doesn't only move in one plane of motion when you're, you're outside of the gym. So when you're in the gym, it makes sense to incorporate those movements into it as well. Yeah, I mean, totally. And you're spot on. It's, it's about integrating. Also, I think it's about understanding what strength is to the individual because different people have different definitions of strength or, or being strong. And a, even in rugby, that's rugby obviously one of my main sports, even if you take rugby, a, a prop, if you ask a prop to define strong versus a fullback to, to define strong, they'll probably give you a different answer. So I think as a coach, as a PT, that the first question is, well, if someone says to you, I want to be stronger, the, the question is, well, how do you define strong? What does that mean to you? And then you can start to work from there. Now, and as you said, well, quite, quite rightly, in my opinion, is that the, fact that the traditional movements, the squats, the deadlifts, etc., they would always, I say always, they will generally still form that foundation of most of my clients' training, the, the clients that I still work with those foundational patterns are still there because that's how we evolved. We evolved squatting and picking heavy things up. However, we've also evolved to pick, pick things up from an odd position, i.e. we don't go into inverted commas a neutral spine and pick something up perfectly. It's never going to be dead center. The weight is never going to be perfectly balanced. So therefore, 
surely we should also train like that in the gym. You're never going to hit uh, someone on the rugby pitch or tackle someone on the rugby pitch in, with perfect form. It's never going to happen. You're never going to step perfectly off your right knee, off your right foot at a 90 degree angle. So why do you train with these perfect symmetries in the gym if that's not what you're replicating, whether it be in your sport or whether day to day? Yeah, I, I mean, you use the, the example of rugby. Uh, the example I always use is tennis. Not that I'm a tennis player, but just because I think whenever Wimbledon's on, they put out some fantastic slow-mo shots of world-class players putting their bodies into positions that if you ask most people, they would say, that's really bad for you. Don't ever do that with your body. And knees at strange angles and feet twisting all over the place. And ultimately, they need to be strong in that position. And, and like you say, strong for a tennis player is different to strong for a, a power lifter. And the only way they're going to get strong in those positions is to train in those positions. And you're not going to go into a, like a 45 degrees forward slash lateral lunge with a 200 kilo bar on your back because that is going to be bad for you. That is going to make something pop, but you could do squats or well, depending on the, the person, obviously you could do a heavy, heavy squat. It might be 200 kilos for most people. It probably won't be anything close to that, but with a heavy bar on their back. And then you could incorporate the side lunges with a Viper or with a body blade or a kettlebell or a TRX in some, some form. So it's about, finding the needs of the person that's in front of you or yourself if you're working on your own looking at what you're doing in your life in your sport and thinking okay what demands is my body or a client's body under in this situation how can i replicate that in the gym to improve my my functionality in that position or through that movement and adam like sorry like as you just said um at the end of the day, if you're going into a gym and there's bad form or whatever it is, you're right. You never hit somebody perfectly lined up in any sport, no matter what it is. You're never going to be in the optimum position because you've got adaptability, you've got reactions of all the other people coming and so on. But I think a lot of people in the gym choose form over anything and linear movements over most things because of, of fear. They're scared of putting themselves into these positions because they are taught that if you go into this position, it's bad. And I think that does leave people susceptible to injury when they're in the field of play. Because when you're at a gym, it's, you can make it as controlled as you want it. We keep going back into this linear talk. And I know a lot of the work you do yourself, Adam, is non-linear. It's using multiple planes. But yeah, I think if you train in a certain way in the gym, that's got to complement. It's got to benefit your your session when you're actually doing performing the sport you do. No, I think you're dead right, Luke. And I think it's a really valid point that you bring up about this idea of fear. And for a lot of people, is it, like you say, it's they they've gone to the gym, they've been given a very generic program by a gym instructor, or maybe even they have a personal trainer, and maybe that personal trainer is. Maybe that person trained themselves is very much more into the aesthetics of, of training, which, and don't get me wrong, if you want to get big, then most of the training you do to get big does involve just moving things up and down, forwards and back in, in, that, in, that, line, in, that, um, in that fashion. And that works for that person. 
the problem with that then is that their, their thought patterns then transfer onto their clients more often than not. Obviously, that's a big generalization. And therefore, when that client goes actually to move out of that plane, it is that comfort zone, it's that fear. So well, my, my trainer said this and my trainer said that, or I've read online that your knee shouldn't go over your toes, for example. I mean, we've all heard that common one. And again, we know the research out there to show that that's actually isn't the case. We need, I mean, try going downstairs without the knee traveling over the toe. Well, we're not going to go into the science behind it, but it's physically impossible. And, and so I think what we've got to look at there is this phrase of, of positional strength. And for anyone who does use a Viper or has ever followed a, or knows of Michel Dulcourt, it's something he talks about, this idea of positional strength and also odd position strength. And, and I think once you can understand that the needs of your or demands of your sports, that will start to give you the confidence because a lot of people don't look at what they do in the same way as they do gym work. They just look at rugby as rugby or football as football and tennis as tennis. They don't really see, as you point out, Paul, with the slow-mos at Wimbledon and whatnot, is that the knee does twist. It does rotate. People think that we're not allowed to rotate our knee. But it's designed to do that. Yes, not 180 degrees or anything crazy like that. However, there is room for rotation. So if you're requires sport or your sport demands rotation through the knee through the hip through the ankle then we need to start to encourage that in in the in the gym and my i guess suggestion to overcome that fear is about education and that's where the trainers we do need as trainers as coaches we do need to understand that the body is three-dimensional we move as such we are interconnected that my left ankle can affect my right shoulder for example and when we need to understand that so for me, it's about educating clients. So I work with um, GB age group squash players, for example, and I've been working with them for about two and a half years now. And they first came to me, very, very much like you said, Luke, is that they did have a, a PT, and that PT, by all accounts, was lovely and did everything very safely and did everything that they kind of asked of, of them. Yet everything, when I asked them what they'd been doing, was just up and down and forwards and back. When does a squash player move up and down, forwards and back? When do they sit on, sit on a chair? They don't. And then all of a sudden we started to introduce multi-dimensional movement along with traditional strength programs and protocols. And all of a sudden, what do you think has happened to their squash game? It's gone through the roof. Yeah. And so yeah. I think um, another reason I use racket sports as, as an example is although we talk about the body moving in three dimensions, most of what we do is still sagittal. Um, but when you look at racket sports, you do get an awful lot more lateral and transverse movements just from the nature of the sport being side to side on a court. Um, so it is much easier to see those the, the need for those kinds of movements. If you compared it to a weightlifter, a powerlifter, 90, 95%, probably more than that of their training, if you're talking in terms of improving their sporting performance will be sagittal because what they're training to do is up and down forwards and back but that doesn't mean they couldn't still benefit from adding lateral and transverse movements in there because it's just going to to help to give them a stronger base make things more stable and ultimately in those kinds of pure strength sports having that strong base there is probably the most important thing 
particularly if you're talking uh, Olympic weightlifting, mobility is a huge part of it as well. It's not so important mm. in powerlifting, but if you're doing lateral movements, you're building up your, your glute med, for example, that's going to help you to really open your hips out to get low into a squat, which is essential if you're doing a snatch or a clean, because if you can't get all the way into a squat, then you've got a very clear ceiling on how much weight you can lift before you, you reach the point that you just can't muscle it up anymore. You're going to have to work on that mobility to get the depth, to get underneath it. Totally. And I think, the challenge always there with those more traditional sports is exactly that it's traditional and it's, it's very much, and again, I'm generalizing. So apologies to any weightlifters out there, any lifters out there yet from my experience of working with lifters, it is very much, we've done this for the last 20 years and it's worked amazingly well and we're not really going to change it. However, Paul, totally agree with you. I think if you look at a lateral lunge, for example, I think a lateral lunge is probably one of the most underutilized, let's call it assistance exercise out there. I mean, it, it really does fire up, strengthen that hip complex massively. So if you are doing any kind of sagittal plane lift, deadlift, squat, etc., cetera, uh, I would, I, well, I do. I mean, lateral, a lateral lunge for me is, is in a lot of my clients' programs, it's my own, in my own programs. So I believe that's one of the, the, let's use the word, functional exercises for the hip complex out there. Yeah, and I would throw aesthetics into the ring with that as well. Um, kind of booty building, if you like, is, yeah. again, generalizing, is something a huge amount of women particularly are looking for at the moment. It's, it's very much the thing on Instagram. Lateral lunging is, is going to aid with that. It's going to help build that round shape on, on the hips, on the, on the bum, and probably to more than... Um, doing things like banded clamshells or oh i don't even get me started on clamshells um <laughs> physios or uh, practitioners out there who love their clamshells um i have had a, i did was presenting once at a conference and i did use the clamshells as a, as a what not to do and there was lots of pilates teachers there and i, I got cornered for half an hour um, i'm not saying they don't have their place yet uh, for booty building as you called it paul there's far better exercises out there for sure one of those being, I call them cross-directional lunges, and most people call them a curtsy, curtsy lunge. I mean, if you want to really get some, some size and some function going through those hips, you want to get curtsy lunging, because that, again, that applies to much any sport, it's day-to-day -day life, it's everything. It's, again, it's a fantastic movement, multi-dimensional movement, yet again, very rarely used. Yeah, one of my favorite exercises to do with clients is weight in your left hand or right hand if you're doing it the other way lateral side lunge with the right leg right leg then comes back across into a curtsy and you're just working that whole hip complex as you say built work if they just want to feel a, a burn and a pump you get it you, you get the aesthetics there and you've got a really good range of motion functional again in inverted commas uh exercise there as well I think, though, going back to Luke's point, even with those sorts of exercises, it's all about creating a safe space for the clients. Yeah. Because these will be new exercises to people, and they will believe have to have that, that belief system embedded in them from whatever that might be, whether it's school days, whether it's their first PT, or whatever it might be, YouTube, I don't know, that to move in that plane of motion or to, to allow their knees to travel over their toes is bad. And so 
think about just starting the bubble nice and small and then just gradually growing that bubble. So for anyone listening out there, don't think you're just going to start throwing loads of lateral lunges in there or curtsy lunges. It's, it's about taking the movements and, and then integrating them into what your client needs. So there's a saying, one of the companies I used to, to I, I did education for was PTA Global. And one of the sort of uh, tagline sayings that we, we had was very much about give the clients what they want packaged how they need. So it's basically saying, yeah, if someone comes to you and they want to get big and strong or they want to have a, I don't know, they want to be fit for sport, but they don't want to do any kind of quirky exercises where it's layering that in. So you don't go all in with kettlebells and dumbbells and everything like that. You go in first of all with the, the simple stuff and then you slowly build into to what they actually what they actually need as opposed to what they want. Uh, and that way, therefore, you can get that exercise adherence, you get that, that support system, that network, that safety, safety net, if you like, from the client. So that, that is one of the key things I find working most dimensionally is that people are scared because it's the unknown and people don't like the unknown, especially when it comes to lifting weights, kettlebell, wipers, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, I think growing the bubble is a really, really good term there. Uh, I remember having a conversation with another personal trainer, I don't know, four, five, six years ago, and they were talking about an elderly client they had and saying, oh, it's really annoying. I'm trying to do forward lunges with her, but she just won't put her or, or can't get that knee down to the floor. She's hardly got any range of motion, so I don't know what to do. And I said, well, she probably can't do that because she doesn't have the strength or she doesn't have the confidence. So you just work in the the range within the bubble that she's got you make it a smaller range of motion you add a, a chair or a trx or something there to support them so they can hold on to something and you work up from there and over time the progression for them rather than adding load is adding range of movement um, yeah and it's it's just another form of we had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago who was saying one of the problems with pt courses is you're often taught that the only ways to progress are to either add load or add reps, but actually there's huge, huge amounts more you can do for progression. As we say, adding range of motion, it could just be as simple as feeling more confident about themselves. It's not all progression is, is measurable on a clipboard. No, uh, no, again, spot on. And I think, the other thing about what you said there that that, that trainer was saying they could this person can lunge is that that trainer's perception of what a lunge is and again with our within our industry a lot of people's perception of a lunge or a squat is a lunge is a stepping all the way forwards and the knee touches the floor and then you step all the way back and the step as well is quite a, a long step forwards as well encouraging the knee to go over toe ideally all that kind of stuff yeah, by definition, if we look at what a lunge actually is by definition, a lunge is a step and return. So my step and return could be three inches in front of me and my rear knee might only drop two inches. That by definition is still a lunge. So all of a sudden, if your lunge now, start, your starting point, your lunge is there, you've got so much room for progression just with range of motion. So you can obviously move it forwards multiple inches. You can take it lower multiple inches. You can then add weight into it, tempo. And that's just to begin with. Then you've got all your various drivers and whatnot. So I think, yeah, 
I think as an industry, we're very quick to define a certain movement. A squat is ass to grass for some people. No, a squat is pelvis towards the floor. So for some people, that squat might only be the pelvis moves three to four inches down. However, for that person, that's their squat. It's not good, bad, right or wrong. It's what's right for them. And I think sometimes, we, especially when work, we, we talk with strength training or even with, let's call it functional training, we have these preconceived ideas or perceptions of what a movement should look like when the reality is the movement is how the person moves. I think a lot of people, coaches, people who dabble in a, a little bit of research but don't follow it fully, they will quite often look at an exercise and they'll go, okay, what can I do to optimize this movement? What level of depth do I need to do? And they take the, they take the summary of that research paper, whatever it is, and they'll say, okay, right, to get optimal uh, recruitment patterns from this particular exercise, we need to get them to that. And because their client can't do that, they say it's not optimal or whatever it is. And I think that's where the conversations between different uh, therapists, PTs, whatever it is. I think that's where the lines get a bit muddy. I think that's where people aren't really sure what is right and what is wrong. But as you, as we keep saying, it all comes down to the client you've got in front of you or the athlete you've got in front of you and what they can do. Totally. I, I don't, and I know it's a, it's a hard thing to, to quantify in the sense of, I don't necessarily think there is generally a right or a wrong. It's what's right or for the person that's in front of you and more importantly at that moment in time because what's right for the person on monday might not be right for the person on wednesday for whatever reason they might have had a hard contact session at rugby training on tuesday and so therefore what was right on monday now isn't the right thing for wednesday they might have gone out on the beers on wednesday night and therefore they're not in optimal performance for the session on thursday so i think as a coach as well and this is where for me i guess over my time in the industry and working with clients and also the way my mind's changed is that I used to be, for my background, so my athletics and my Olympic lifting and my, even my rugby, I was a very prescriptive coach. This is the plan and we're sticking to it. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to work. And that was very much my mindset and that's also the way I trained. And if I didn't finish a session, I would beat myself up for it. And I kind of didn't have quite that aggressive mentality with my clients initially, yet it was that kind of approach. It's, here's the plan, it's planned, it's periodized. This is what science says you should be able to do. And I would say in quite a short space of time, relatively speaking, so within a few years, I realized that, you know what, that's not the way to train people. Yes, you have a plan, of course. Yes, you apply science to it. Yet as a coach, whether you're working in performance, whether you're working with Joe Public, whether you're working with age group athletes, doesn't really matter. The reality is you've got to meet the needs of, or meet their demands on a daily basis. And every day is going to be very different for lots of different reasons, how they're moving, how they feel, their emotional energy, their physical energy, their mental energy will all be very different. So someone's emotional energy will most definitely determine how deep they can go in the squat. So they may feel fantastic on a Monday, yet they have an argument with their partner on a Tuesday, which has really upset them. They haven't got over when they come into training with you on Wednesday. And you know what, their mind's elsewhere and they don't have the confidence to go as deep as they did in their squat on Monday. Now, that's not, that's not a mechanical issue. That's an emotional issue. So as a coach, we need to understand that that exists and how do we address that and, how, and what's the right thing to do. Well, maybe the right thing to do isn't to squat that day. 
maybe the right thing to do is actually to go and take their mind off of the session and have some fun and play some games of some kind. Throw some tennis balls in, get them moving, have a laugh, for example. And, and, and people go out there and go, but that's not training us. And I would argue that no, that is training. You're doing what is right for them. And that's the key thing. And, and to give you an example of that from, my, from, a, from an athlete's perspective, when I gave up rugby, I, I took up cycling. And I took, I, obviously cycling being an endurance sport, I've got, a, I'm a very power-based athlete, so I don't have, I have no injury. So I took on a coach, and for, obviously a cycling coach. And technically, he was brilliant. He was an ex-GB uh, triathlete, I think he was, and great coach, used all the tech, all the training uh, pigs programs, and he was brilliant. And I used him for two, two and a half years, and he, he got me to a place where I, I could perform to a reasonably good level. My point, though, is that what he didn't do is he didn't understand me, and that's why I stopped training with him, was because I... I also started to travel a lot more with work, couldn't always do the sessions or didn't have the time to do an hour and a half on the what bike or maybe it was just emotionally or mentally just a bit trained because I've been presenting all day. And if I didn't hit the numbers in the session, I'd have an email saying, why didn't you hit the numbers? I'm tired. I'm mentally tired. Well, physically, you should be able to do this. So why didn't you do it? And so... I was getting reprimanded by my coach when I was emotionally and mentally drained for not hitting my physical peak. And he didn't understand, whilst technically he was a brilliant coach and he could plan and periodize the best program, he didn't understand me. And I think as a coach, whatever style of training you're working with, you have to understand the person in front of you. And therefore you grow the bubble according to the person in front of you and how they feel that day. Yeah, I think... Um... I think this came from PTA Global as well. The the phrase meeting the client where they need to be met. Yeah. And it's it's all about understanding that you are there to help the person in front of you get to where they want to be, not where you want them to be. Um, yeah. It's not about enforcing your views or your beliefs on onto them and turning them into a clone of you. It's about understanding who they are as a person and as an athlete if that's applicable and and using that to their advantage to help them achieve whatever goals they may have at that particular time i think just to sum that up or a phrase i like to use is it's about how they see the world so it's understanding how they see the world and as a coach you don't have to agree with how they see the world, yet you have to understand how they see the world. Yeah, I think we've we've probably all had clients who sometimes drive you mad with whatever it may be, their lifestyle or their work. But you, you have to understand that it's not your job to try and force them to change or to say, well, if you don't stop X, Y, Z, then we're done. It's about trying to, to maximise what they can do whilst accepting that that's part of who they are. Or certainly at that particular period yeah. in time, that's, that's part of who they are. No, so, totally. And I think, well, not I think, I mean, I know that it, ultimately it's about saying to them, okay, cool, I, I understand where you're coming from. What's, what's holding you back or what's stopping you? And I think that sometimes as coaches, we're afraid to do that. 
we're, we're afraid to say, well, what's stopping you? What's holding you back? Because we think as a coach, and again, I'm making a, a big sweep of generalizations, as coaches, we're there to almost, sometimes I think coaches, PTs are scared that if they, if they address the problems or if they confront the client, they might lose the clients. And therefore, they're sometimes scared to say, okay, well, why is that? And so it's a simple question, why? Why are you unable to do that? Why doesn't that work? Because as a coach and a PT, the more insight you have into them, the better the program you can create because you can understand their needs more so. Like I said, you don't have to agree with how they see the world. You have to understand how they see it, though, because then it's going to allow you to be more specific and meet their needs, as you rightly said there, Paul. And the better a coach can do that, the, the more the better the results or the better the outcome is going to be for that person, that athlete, that, that individual, because they'll have a program that they can adhere to because it's right for them. There is going to be a risk in some people's minds that they might lose that person. But if they are going to lose that person, I think long term, they're probably not a good matchup. So, so there's, there's a risk. It's not a guarantee. And I think it's a perceived, a perceived thought. So people will almost preempt the, the answer before they even ask the question. As you say, unless you ask those questions, you, you're not going to get to the root of the problem. And if we, you know, we've used a few, few terms here today, we use coach, PT, whatever it is. But if we just use personal trainer for as an example, personal trainer, you're dealing with the person. So unless you are asking those questions, you're probably not going to get the results you want. I think that's sometimes where where this particular problem, if you like, develops is that to be a good personal trainer, you need to develop some kind of personal relationship with your client, you know, beyond what, say, an accountant would. You need to understand that person. There needs to be a trust and a rapport there. And it's about doing that whilst also understanding that you are there doing a job and that you're a professional and you still have to approach that person as a professional not as their friend yeah i mean and there's a phrase i like to use i've used when i've, I've coached personal trainers and, and their businesses and it's a phrase i say it's, it's about getting better clients and what i mean by that because people immediately they think oh you mean i'm rich clients no i don't mean that at all I mean, get clients who value your services. And again, it's that, and again, what I mean by that is that it's clients that understand that when you ask an awkward question that that client might not like, it's because you're trying to help them understand more about themselves or you're trying to understand how you can help them more so. And when you have a client that understands, that understands your value to them, you have a client that will be with you for as well for life potentially so going back to luke's point is that i would much rather either a not take a client on on if we're not aligned or b if i take if i were to take a client on and realize very quickly that you know what we're not going to be able to work together i would much rather get rid of them because for me it's about getting results and we are a results-based business. And you've also got to be a little bit selfish because if your clients aren't getting results, people see you're not getting results, then you're not going to get any new business. Now, I understand from a monetary perspective that personal trainers won't want to lose clients, especially at this moment in time. However, 
I can promise you by getting better clients, it will only grow your business. One of my most, I'm very fortunate and always have done, have worked with some exceptionally wealthy people. And one of my most loyal clients is, I'm going to say just an average person. He earns, yeah, above average income, but not massively above that. And he has to budget to see me. And I've been training him now for 10 years. And he's moved geographically. He's probably moved about 30 miles to come train with me twice. So my point being is when you get a client that understands your value as a coach of them, you've got a client that will listen and make those changes. So as a coach, don't be afraid to ask all questions because if you lose that client, you already said, Lou, maybe you're going to lose them further down the road anyway. Or more than likely you would do. You've just done it sooner, which is better, because then you can get someone in who does value your services and skills. And we've, I realize we've gone completely off topic of statement <laughs> and whatnot. I told you I would do it. Sorry. Uh, we, we do as well, so it's not just yourself. <laughs> okay, so to kind of get back to, to the original subject then. Functional training, progressive training, whatever you want to call it, three-dimensional training. If a client comes to you or a person comes to you and they've only ever done more traditional squat, deadlift, bench press, etc. And they're, say, a rugby player. They've perhaps they've been through the same kind of thing you have with injury issues, but they are, as is often the case, reluctant to look at other training methods. How how would you kind of have that conversation with them? Again, great question. And I think, I think obviously it would all depend on the person to an extent. Yeah, in reality, it would come down, for me, it would come down to education. And it would be, and again, if it were a player, I would use myself as the case study. Look, I, true, I, I 100% believe that if I trained the way I trained now, now, I would not have ruptured my ACL and then my meniscus when I first came back. I truly believe that, 100%. Not a doubt in my mind. And when I do work with players who play in multidimensional sports, I do use myself as an example a lot. And so in answer to your question, it would be about education. It would be obviously making the, com again, using another PTA global saying there, Paul, uh, making the complex simple. And I would explain ultimately the body is an integrated unit. We move in multiple planes of motion. The stronger we are in all planes of motion, the less likely we are to get injured. It's as simple as that. And if, I need to, I, I would then go into more detail. So based upon their response to that, if it was a positive response and they're like, oh, yeah, you know what, well, that makes sense, let's give it a go, we're in. If they were a bit dubious still, then I would have to go into a bit more detail and I'd give them some physical examples. And again, it comes back to the, give them what they want, packaged how they need. So the whole, you know what, we'll squat. And as you said earlier, Paul, is then you squat and then maybe you throw in a, I know a transverse kettlebell lunge, so it still feels very, let's for one of a better phrase, very masculine, very rugby player like with a big old kettlebell. And now we've got them stepping in a, in a transverse plane instead. So it's a superset. So we go squat, transverse lunge, squat, transverse lunge. So again, kind of laying it in so it doesn't seem as though we're going too far away from what they're used to, and they're still in their safety net. And don't get me wrong, I would, I would never, I wouldn't be going into a I don't know, a single leg kettlebell clean or anything like that on day one. It would be just layering, I guess, the complexity in as we went, keeping it 
close to traditional, yeah, just making subtle tweaks. And again, remember, uh, a, a lateral lunge doesn't have to be this huge, massive step to the side. A transverse lunge doesn't have to be a massive step behind. I might just say to them, and again, in terms of going down another little uh, rabbit hole, language would be another way I'd use it. So if I was working with that rubber player who's a bit kind of wary of doing this whole three-dimensional movement thing, the language I would use would be very, very different. And, and, and my coaching cues, I wouldn't even call it a transverse lunge. I would say something like, with kettlebell, goblet, uh, take the, the kettlebell into a goblet hold, I want you to step to the cone. And I put a cone at, say, three o'clock, a roughly a transverse lunge position. And I'd say, keep your front foot at 12 o'clock, take your left foot or your right foot to three o'clock and squat. That's a transverse lunge. So by using language and drivers and different cues, that's how I, 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 would, I would lay it in as well. So my, the language that I would use would be very important. I certainly wouldn't use functional three-dimensional multi-planar. I would be using cues such as cones, points on the clock to step to that kind of thing as well. Because then they wouldn't even be thinking about this in any other way that my coach just asked me to step to three o'clock. Yeah, it's just training. It's... We just, it, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a label, isn't it? It's ultimately with training. People like to put labels on things. We could even go one step further. It's not even training. It's moving. It's moving with load. So again, to use Michelle's language, it's loaded movement training. That's as simple as that. All we're doing is instead of moving up and down with a large weight, we're moving in different directions with slightly less weight. I get, no quite, a few, I get it quite a few times where I'll be dealing with somebody in the very early stages of rehab. And I'll be showing them different exercises, and um, it always comes down to, hang on, what what's that called? I don't know. What do you want to call it? But but what? I need to know what it's called so I can do exercise. So I'll just go through the exercises with them. We'll record it. We'll video it, and say, doesn't matter what it's called. Just follow the video. Follow it and do it in your own time. The movement yeah. is what we need to achieve. I don't care what you want to call it. You can call it, you know as exotic name as you want to but just perform that movement and we might get some results here and again really key point luke i mean i do exactly the same for clients as you what's this what's this or what makes sense to you i'm not going to give them some long-winded scientific name with i don't know planes of movement in there if they want to call it a pigeon squat okay it's a pigeon squat i made that up by the way i don't think it's such a thing um but i'm sure clients probably call something that so so yeah, so at the end of the day, if you want exercise adherence, it needs to make sense to the client. So if they want to call it something that resonates with them, or they can go, they can then picture it. So now they've, so they've, they've called it whatever it is, pigeon squat. They've now got a mental picture of the pigeon squat. So when they're now not with you, and they've written down, or you've emailed them the program, and it says pigeon squat three times 10, they know exactly what a pigeon squat is, as opposed to, I don't know, a wide stance squat with internal rotation of the left foot, external rotation of the right foot, keep and taking the, the pelvis to 90 degrees. They have no idea what that is. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's key. You just whatever works for them in terms of labeling it. It's cool, in my opinion. I think, um, again, generalizing a lot, it's often a lot easier to get women to move into the using labels again the functional training realm they're generally much more open-minded to it men tend to particularly men with a sporting background 
tend to kind of look at it and say, well, I want to get a bicep pump. How am I going to do that with a you know rubber tube on my back or looping, mm. shifting it out to the side? Well, ultimately, there's nothing to stop you grabbing a pair of dumbbells and getting a bicep pump at the end of the session or, or throwing it into the session somewhere. It, it, like we said right at the start, it's not either or. And like you said, you can do your heavy back squat and then superset that with transverse lunging. You could do it however you like or however is is required for the purposes that you're training for, but just mix things up a bit. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, if you you can do I mean, it's so simple. I mean, and then they let's take a lateral lunge. We use that a lot. So you take a lateral lunge, you throw in, let's say, 12, 15 kg dumbbells. So you're lifting somewhere in the region 30 kgs in a lateral lunge. That's a lot of weight. You then say to that guy, as you like you said, the guys are sometimes less receptive to multi-dimensional functional training. You then say to him, as you step back to start arm curl, well, all of a sudden, yes, you've got a bit of momentum there. So now you're probably more likely to be able to arm curl 15 kilos with reasonably good form. You're going to get a good pump point. It's going to elevate the heart rate. So now I've actually got my lateral plane movement and I've got traditional movement thrown in there at the same time. Done. So yeah, totally. Again, it comes back to the, yeah, we can do that. I think from my perspective, I find it a little bit easier with guys because, because I'm in, in pretty decent shape. I think, and I talk about multi-dimensional movement a lot and people see me train that way. It's much easier for me to get by in personally. However, I totally agree with you. If you are a, a stereotypical male marathon runner, let's say, and you've got a guy that comes to you who, who wants who wants to put on muscle mass, and you talk about multi-dimensional movement, it's going to be a little bit harder to persuade them for sure. Which again comes down to a being able to demonstrate the, the quality of the movement, and also being able to explain the benefits of it as well. And as we just highlighted, why not do a side lunge and then throw an arm curl in as you stand back up? Do six one side, six the other side. You've just done 12 arm curls. I think in a lot of sport, people don't understand that. Actually, I've said sport, but in a lot of movements, what people don't understand generally. There's a lot of generalisation today, isn't there? Yeah. Muscles don't work in isolation. No. We move in using different, and I'm, I'd like you to go in a bit more detail here, but in different slings, if, if you use a term slings or an alternative. But we, use in, we move in different ways. And um, a good example I know of is people who are basically lost their legs. They can walk on, on the basis of their hips purely through the rotation of the spine in a similar way to a snake would move, just small rotations of a spine. And if somebody can walk just on basically the base of their hips, surely that's an indication that we don't work linearly in isolation. We move using rotation. and um, can go a lot more but yeah if we were to go in a bit more detail with the slings and stuff could you explain a bit more about that for people who don't understand uh yeah we can go into into functional slings and no problem i mean in fact i kind of did a social media post on it this morning uh, with some tall kneeling exercises on instagram so ultimately the way we move and again some of you might be familiar with things like anatomy trains and our myofascial lines as well which is kind of interconnected to the posterior sling, functional slinging, etc. So, for example, if I'm walking in gait, let's say, a lot of people, so if we take the example of gait, that's that you just mentioned it, Luke, as well. A lot of people 
a lot of PTs will say that gave the glutes switch on where? So from your, your both your experiences, when I walk, when do the glutes, and I'm going to use the word switch on in inverted commas, uh, when do the glutes switch on when I'm walking? From, from what most people would say, what would they say to you? Um, probably as you're, go, as you're, again, not talking in technical gait terms here, but essentially toe off. As, you're, as your leg is in front, as you land, they would engage for deceleration. The thing about most people out there, so general population or most, most PTs who don't okay. where would they? Through the extension phase of your yeah, extension. Yeah, yeah, when you actually look at how we how the glutes work in gait, the glutes are actually working more so when we're in hip flexion. Yet what is the the main exercise people go to for training the glutes? Hip extension. So by just looking at some of the posterior sling and how it works in gait is that actually when my hip is in flexion, that is when my glutes primarily is doing the work. Then, as you've already said, Luke, it crosses the body. So I'm actually got that reciprocal motion. So my glute then crosses the hip and ultimately I'm working through to my left lat. So as I'm walking, it's going right glute, left lat, right glute, left lat. And I'm simplifying things massively here because I'm not sure who's listening. I don't want to go too deep. So we have our posterior sling and it works across the body and we have to understand that when we are moving everything changes so anything you learn on your level two level three three session uh, qualifications in your anatomy books most of that stuff has been done on cadavers when they're lying flat on a, a slab and when they pick up a muscle oh this reaction happens so yeah when i lift up when I go into hip extension, oh, look, the glute kind of gets tighter. However, when we move, everything changes. So when I walk, I've got two forces acting upon me. I've got my gravity and I've got ground reaction force. And when I put those two things into play, everything changes in my body. So what I would say to anyone listening out there is that whilst what you, what you may have learned in your level threes and, and a lot of other things out there is not wrong, it's just incomplete. And that we have to understand that when we look at movement, our body does work very differently. Luke, you mentioned everything's connected. We have our myofascial slings. And yeah, my left big toe could affect something in my right shoulder through my spiral line, for example. So the more we understand movement efficiency, the better results we can get with our clients. So I don't know how deep you want me to go. That's the thing. I'm just yeah, I, th I think for our audience, that, that's as deep as we need to go. Okay. Um, I know from my perspective, when I, I, I don't really train many people at all. It's not my area. But at the end stages of rehab, I consider that training. So when we get into those phases, I will train movement patterns, as we've talked about. So you could argue push, pull, squat, and rotations and stuff like that. but Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is create a movement pattern, and that is others which I haven't mentioned, but create a movement pattern that will incorporate a number of muscles. And um, yeah, I know you can go into a lot more depth here, but maybe maybe that's for another time. I think to put it into a, a kind of a relatable sense, things like loaded carries, if we kind of bring it into the functional versus traditional debate again, a loaded carry is something that has been done for forever. Um, mm -hmm. Pre-training being a thing, but if we bring it more modern day, strongmen have done them forever. 
it's part of their sport it's something they do it's something that kind of went missing a bit i think for a period in in gyms bodybuilders or high level bodybuilders would do farmers carries and things to build up the lats uh, sorry the traps but not a huge amount more than that gen pop wouldn't do them a lot and now with functional training coming in more you're seeing different types of carry come in there as well or come back again your, your traditional farmer's carry you could have a, a sandbag in a front rack is something i love to do i think that's a, if you're talking about core training getting some kind of relative to the person heavy sandbag heavy med ball in front of the body just holding it there carrying a I don't think there's there's much more or a much better exercise you can do for someone at the end of it going, oh, wow, I really felt that working in my abs. And again, we were talking about glute training earlier. Loaded carries there goes to what you were saying with, with the gait pattern. You're loading up the glutes, but you're loading up or you're loading up the body and then working the glutes through their natural pattern as opposed to doing clamshells or some kind of cable kickback or a hip thrust again we're not saying don't do things like deadlifts or squats or hip thrusts for the glutes but bring in the a carry or and a lateral lunge and again those are very holistic exercises not in a, a holistic i know a lot of people here have the phrase holistic and think oh it's a bit wishy-washy and vegan and yoga and very much related to that kind of thing but just in a using the whole body as it's perhaps built to built to be used i mean what we've got i think what we've got to remember is that our industry is still very young i mean if you yes you can go back to ancient greek times and yes they did do they lifted weights and whatnot yet as an actual physical industry that makes money it's well, late 70s, let's say, late 70s, early 80s, when it really started to monetize fitness, let's say. So we're talking now 40, 50 years old, which in the grand scheme of things is super young. I mean, you look at the world of accountancy, of banking, finance, they're hundreds of years old. And what that means is we're still learning low. So I think it's still a really exciting time for us because in the early 70s, late 70s, early 80s, even late 80s and early 90s, there wasn't much research or science going, uh, research going on in terms of outside of the traditional cadaver studies. We just looked at the body as this kind of body that moves forwards and back. And even back then, the idea of actually walking being three-dimensional movements. When we walk, we, move, we obviously move forward statutorily. However, our hips move in the frontal plane, i.e. side to side, and our spine rotates, so transverse plane. So we move in all three planes of movement and we walk. However, if you had said that back in the 80s, people would call you stupid. Because no, you just move forwards. So research into movement, into the effects of weight training, let's call it weight training and functional training is still so young, is that we will obviously go through cycles, like fashion goes through cycles. I have no doubt that that will happen. However, we've got to still go, you know what, the likes of Arnie and Jane Fonda were amazing because they, without them, the three of us wouldn't be having this conversation. It's as simple as that. However, what it means is that we're still learning so much about the body. And as a coach, I think my take on things anyway, is very much, we, we can never stop learning as coaches. We need to understand that 
things like carries, whilst they are very simple, are very, very effective. And that sometimes the really simple stuff is the best stuff. And that whilst, yes, I spoke earlier of Paul Check jumping on Swiss balls, the reality is very few people will ever need to do that. Whether And I don't necessarily agree that some people will say that's functional. I don't necessarily agree with that personally. It's a bit of a party trick. And yeah, if you want to do that and look cool, it's great. However, the reality is if you do the simple stuff really well, you will be strong. What I mean by the simple stuff? Yes, if you look at your, if you look into your training programs, if you can lift something off the floor, deadlift. If you can lift something above your head, overhead press. If you can carry something for distance, whether it be as a goblet hold on your shoulder, above your head, doesn't really matter. If you can carry something for distance, so day to day that'd be like carrying a baby. If you can move something through the field of gravity, so from side to side, with weight or load, that'll be good for you. So the way I look at things is keep it simple. Look at moving patterns. And yes, I know we have the simple moving patterns of deadlifts, squats, lunge, etc. In turn, the way I like to look at things though, is I like to look at loaded movement as well. So I like to shift things. So I have a client who's, I've been training now for three or four years, and she came to me initially from a physio recommendation. And ultimately, whenever she lifted something off the floor, her back would give way. So guess what one of the main exercises is that we do? We have her in a squat, and I have her lifting a viper from the right side to the left side, and the left side back to the right side in a squat position because it's getting her fit for purpose. purpose. So I still have that squat pattern. However, now I've got some loaded movement in there as well. So I think, going back to what you're saying, Paul, is that, you know what, keep it simple, don't overthink things, get the main movement patterns in there, add some odd position strength, as Michelle would call it, and some positional strength in there, and you're not going to go far wrong, in my opinion, for either day-to-day or for sports training. But you need to understand that research is out there it's always there's new ideas new concepts and as a coach you've got to and this is one i believe it's 100 percent. you've got to try stuff yourself and that's one of the for me one of the sad things i see in our industry is that there's too many coaches out there who will clearly tell a client to do something yet have never done it themselves and to be able to coach someone you need to have done it yourself even if you've only done it for a short period of time you need to experience what it feels like. You need to understand the coaching cues. You need to understand the effects it has on the body. And that for me is the biggest thing is that if you don't do lateral lunges in your program, don't give it to your clients because you won't cue it right. You won't coach it right. And you won't understand why you're doing it. So I kind of went off on a tangent there, I think. That was very well put. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like it's very easy to pick up a, a strength training anatomy book and see all the red marks where an exercise is working, throw that into a client's program because you say, okay, they need that because they need to get stronger there. But coming back to the, the body being a big connected unit, that client may well do that exercise and say, oh, I feel that here. And it's not the red bit in yeah. the book. And if you haven't, done that yourself then you're going to go oh they must be doing it wrong i don't understand that you you need to have felt it to be able to go yeah that is working as well but what we're really focusing on with this exercise is this that's what i want you to think about contracting or and it's it's also understanding that everyone's different and 
by that is that yeah traditionally they should they should feel it in inverted commas here here and here the reality is they might feel it there there and there <laughs> and what i mean by that is if i take a let's let's take a reasonably relatively traditional movement a kettlebell squat and let's say we take it into a offset rack position so i've got it in, i've got the kettlebell racked in my right side so now all my lateral leg stabilizers on my left side in theory should be working for some people if they've got a dysfunction on their right side it might be their right side that they feel it or in theory as i go down i should left lateral stabilizers spinal stabilizers should be working in theory and my right glute should probably work a little bit more than my left glute. However, I might have a dysfunction in the sense of maybe I am right-footed, and so therefore my left glute takes all the work. So actually my left, my left glute now is taking over from my right side because that's what it's always done. And actually I don't feel anything in my right glute. So the point being is that rarely will someone feel something where they're meant to feel it. In general, I mean, yes, you'd like to think most people may squat or fill in their quads. Yeah, like you said, there's, there's nuances there. If you give someone, and more so with functional exercise or multi-dimensional, because the moment you start to put offset loads in or odd position loads, there is no, you should feel it here or here on the lats or the biceps. It's, a, it's where does that work for you? And that's the great thing about working multi-dimensionally functional, odd position planes of motion is that it will highlight where you're weak yeah yeah absolutely i was about to go down a massive rabbit hole with the the right-footed thing but i'll avoid that for now i think um but uh to kind of move towards wrapping things up what's included in kind of an average training week for you or would be if we weren't in gyms and things being the way they've been the last few months as in my own training? Your own training, yeah. Uh, to be honest, it hasn't changed that much. I've trained a little bit more, not massively more, to be honest. I've probably done more condition, uh, more strength work in, in my garage gym. So what is a traditional week? Well, I'm, as some of you might have gathered, whilst I do like to do progressive multi-dimensional stuff myself, I still do like structure. So my weeks are very structured. And Mondays... Uh, something I didn't mention was tapped upon was obviously I, I'm I cycle now and last year I actually qualified for Great Britain in the and competed at the World Age Group Championships in Poland. So cycling is my thing and I'm, I'm fairly, fairly decent at it I guess. So that's all my main focus. I have a walk bike at home. So on a Monday is primarily it's about an hour and a half on the watt bike using some of you might have heard of Zwift got to say pre-lockdown I was quite anti-Zwift I was like I don't need a I don't need a game to, to help me train and I've kind of turned that on its head and I've kind of absolutely all over Zwift I'm getting a bit addicted to it and it's, it really is the is the gamification of cycling it's uh, it's been brilliant for me so an hour and a half on Zwift working generally a sort of tempo sweet spot sort of space pace so uh, in terms of power in relating to heart rate that would generally be working for an hour and a half between 70 and 85 percent of maximum heart rate then tuesdays are a double session tuesday mornings are in the garage or my gym training which will be 
much more of a whilst we've already said yes the body's integrated i do probably do more of a more of a leg focused session on a tuesday so there will be things like kettlebell cleans there will be pistol squats in there there will be lots of lateral lunges what did i do this morning i did some shrimp squats as well there was pull-ups on the rings that kind of stuff um, so they tend to be more of a traditional kind of workout on a tuesday morning in the gym going a bit heavier Tuesday evenings or back on the what bike for 45 minute anaerobic session. So think 30 on 30 off 10 times, that sort of stuff. Getting me sort of more race prep stuff. If you like, then Wednesdays is my rest day because Wednesdays at the moment are a very busy day for me. Coaching wise, a lot of online coaching generally. And then Thursdays is a double session back into the gym in the morning. That tends to be much more multi-planar type movements. So using Vipers, Kettlebells again, a bit of animal flow stuff as well. Thursday evenings is back into anaerobic VO2 type stuff on the Watt bike. Fridays is what I call playtime. Fridays, normally I'm finished work by about midday on a Friday. And it's I just do what feels good. So I might go in the garden, do some animal flow. I might just get the Vipers out and do some mobility work. I might just do a bit of stretch. I might get uh, in cycling, you have something called rollers, which you can cycle on. So think of it as a treadmill for bikes. So I might jump in rollers and listen to a podcast for an hour and just chill out in the sun. So Fridays are generally an easy day, but just I just go with the flow. Saturdays, generally out on the bike for three hours-ish. At the moment, I'm still, still running solo at the moment. I still haven't ridden with anyone really. Still doing what I believe to be, I guess, uh, morally the right thing at the moment. Uh, especially with what I do as a, for a living. And then Sundays, we're either back out on the bike or on Swift for a two-hour session. So that's that's my training week. Plus lots of mobility pre- and post-watt bike sessions. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a typical training week for me. So about probably about 10 to 12 hours of training a week. And in terms of recovery, what do you... What do you swear by? What I swear by. In the winter, I find it much easier to do this. I do swear by Epsom salts or magnesium salt baths. Obviously, when it's 35 degrees on a Saturday, you're less inclined to jump in a magnesium bath. Uh, what do I swear by, though? I do use vibration tools, so massage guns. Uh, very lucky PowerPlay sent me their new version. So I have a PowerPlay massage gun, which I use pre and post, and which I, I do really like. In terms of what else do I do? I do wear compression kits, compression tights. Uh, there is, I believe, enough evidence out there from the research suggests that there is a benefit to wearing it pre and post on there. Do lots of mobility work. And I, for me, recovery is also obviously less intense. So I might even sometimes, if I've had a, a big session, a big ride on a Saturday morning, I might jump on the walk bike for 30 minutes at like, 50% of my FTP, which is your functional threshold power. So think of that as being like a 50% of your max heart rate. So I might do just a recovery session on there. One thing I'd love to do more of is massages, but I don't prioritize my time well enough to, to fit a massage in. Uh, I never really have done. It's always, you know, I'll do it one day. Uh, so I think for me, ultimately recovery is vibration therapy, is movement, is compression wear, is obviously sleep's massive for me. My my bedroom is like a sleep den. I I use 
I have black, two blackout blinds. I have a looming clock to wake me up in the mornings. I have a white noise machine that runs all night long. Uh, yeah, so sleep to me is, is probably my key to recovery. And I, I go to bed at 10 o'clock and I'm up at six o'clock pretty much every day without fail. Well, Adam, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been uh, really interesting listening to what you've got to say. Where can people go to find out more about you, more about what you do? I guess the main places at the moment are Instagram, which is Adam and Daniel MBA. I'm also on LinkedIn, although not particularly active in terms of posting stuff on there, but I am on there if you want to connect with me on there. At the moment, it's most definitely Instagram. I am looking to be launching a YouTube channel soon. Well, I hope to go into a lot more detail around not just training, also around behavior change and coaching as well. That's a big, big passion of mine. But yeah, I would suggest Instagram is probably the, the best bet at the moment. Luke, same question. Yeah, so Instagram is zen underscore anatomy. Facebook, zen anatomy sports therapy. And my website is zenanatomy.co.uk. I'm at PT across socials borospt.com and you can follow the podcast at talking fit pod so thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next time goodbye